Uh, yeah, we've finished James, looking at Word in Action. We just had, through February, had a series of what we called one-shots, just one-off sermons. Now we're going to start a brand new series. We're going to be in for a little while. We're going to look at the book of Genesis. Ooh, who knows Genesis well? No one in the house. I bet you do. You know it well, you know it well, but we can always get to know it more, can't we? We are going to spend quite a while in Genesis. What we're going to do, the plan is at the moment, to work up until uh, Noah and something quite large happened during Noah's life. We'll look at all of that, Noah and his family and the flood, etc. We'll make that that far all the way through Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel and so on. And that, even that's going to take us up to, including Easter, it's going to take us up to somewhere May time. We're actually going to spend a lot more time. Cain and Abel will get one story. The fall will get a couple of stories, a couple of sermons. But Noah, I think we're going to actually slow down a little bit there. There's a lot in Noah's story we can actually pack apart, um, unpack in a whole different way. So we're going to spend a lot of time with Noah. And then we're going to press the pause button. So we're not in Genesis for years. We're going to press the pause button for a while. And we've got a series bubbling away that we're planning and doing some notes on, reading up on. Uh, about the kingdom of God and uh, what it means that the kingdom of God is breaking out now, the now and the not yet, what does that really mean, healing and so on. There's a lot of stuff there we'd love to share with you and learn ourselves. So we're going we're gonna to press Paul's in Genesis for a while, somewhere around May, we're not sure the exact date, spend some time looking at the kingdom of God and then we'll come back to Genesis and carry on for a bit longer and we're going to do something like that. So we're not always getting fed up with Genesis, it always feels fresh and feels exciting. But for now, we're starting in Genesis chapter 1 and... Uh, and let's have an introduction to Genesis. Are we ready to queue up the DVD? I've got a little treat for you. You can do the curtains. We have interesting sound. Does this use a thingy? This one does. Is the sound playing up? If not, we'll abandon it. First book of the Bible. What's it all about? Genesis begins it all. And appropriately, it's at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis really means beginning. If it were anywhere else in the Bible, that would be kind of Without a spigot Can you make a man from a dustpan? Well, you can't but guess what God did it Let there be light, there it was Love bugs and rhinoceroses Adam and Eve had one rule to follow But they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil Causing trouble for all subsequent people In Genesis begins it all And appropriately it's at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis really means beginning. If it were anywhere else in the Bible, that would be kind of confusing. Can you make a man build a zoo? Oh, and make it so the whole thing flows. Well, God told Noah to build a big boat, and I'm sure you're aware of old Abraham and Sarah Isaac. Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, and the twelve sons There's a ton more in there that we would really like to share But we just can't make it clear in this song here About Genesis begins it all And appropriately it's at the beginning of the Bible 
And that's what Genesis is all about. Good, isn't it? Now you know what our kids get up to sometimes. They watch those DVDs during Sunday Club. Genesis really means beginning. There we are. We're going back to the beginnings. What I want to do though, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 1. If you want to turn there. Easy to find. I'm not going to tell you where it is. Genesis chapter 1. What we're going to do, the temptation would be to start on creation. God said and he created. People do it a lot better than I do. John did it really, really well a couple of years ago. I don't know if you remember when we looked through Hebrews 11. Uh, we spent some time in that whole chapter looking through all the different people that gets mentioned. Right at the beginning it talks about creation. And a couple of years ago, John preached on creation versus evolution. Did it really, really well. Unpacked it really well. It's on the website. I don't think we need to repeat it right now. Go back and listen to it if you haven't already or remind yourselves. Really, really helpful stuff. John did it excellently there. But um, what we want to do with Genesis, this series, is actually look at relationships, about man's relationship with God and man's relationship with each other. Um, But I will say this about creation versus evolution before we do that. There are a lot of Christian evolutionists about, that's fine, we can agree to disagree, but what I would say is this. Science is not infallible. It thinks it is. Science is not infallible. And the process is important. If you take evolution as a stock theory and assume that's what's happened, who are Adam and Eve? If we all have a common ancestor, where did Adam and Eve come from? And for Christians, Bible-believing Christians, if we fully believe this to be the revelation of God, if we can't pin down Adam and Eve as a definable couple who God made out of nothing, how did they represent the human race when it came to the fall? And therefore, what did Christ really do on the cross? So we have to be very careful about assuming scientific processes which open up a can of worms when you try and collide them together and they won't fit with Christian faith. We have to be very, very careful. But even when it comes to just recent weeks, Professor James Torr is a leading chemist, leading scientist in the world. He's one of a literal handful of people who should or could be able to explain macroevolution, as its broader name is. He says... I can't explain it, I can't understand it, I don't see how it can work. He says, there's an article just come about it just the last week on the internet, you can have a look, Professor James Tor, as in Tour de France, Professor James Tor. And in there he says, this is the kind of thing me and my colleagues talk about behind closed doors, like we're presenting it as if it's true, but we, we can't see how it can work. He says, I'm coming out in public and saying we can't just do it behind closed doors. If, if, if anyone could explain it, it would be me, and I can't. So don't assume when science, particularly in our classrooms today, says you're an animal, you're the result of a process, we've got to be very careful that you can't just take science at its word and we can stand on the Bible. Whether you believe they were six 24-hour days or six epochs, again, we can agree to disagree, but understand the implications of just embracing evolution as science throws it at us. Does that help? Okay, go back and listen to John's sermon from a couple of years ago, but also we're happy to get John Blanchard, who's very, very good, across the churches to come down and speak, hopefully in May time, come and speak to us across the churches one evening as well. He'll be very good on this subject. And in fact, Darren Blaine is looking to get two or three times a year to talk about this subject together as churches, maybe as an evening seminar or something. That'd be really helpful. But today we're going to start a little bit later in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to look at the fact that we are not animals. 
We don't just have a common ancestor and we're nothing different to dogs, just that we look and act a bit differently. There is something very specific about humanity. We are not an accident. We didn't just happen along with all the wolves and the orangutans. There is something very specific about humanity and that we are made in God's image. Because you see, our stories, personally, our stories always start in the middle of someone else's. Your parents, your grandparents, the culture around you, society around you. Our stories always start in the middle of someone else's. Is that not correct? What about Adam and Eve? What context did they have? See, we, we know I, I am Steve and I'm the son of Peter and Geraldine and both my granddads fought in the war in different places. I know, I know my story. I know where, in that respect, I know where I came from. Adam and Eve didn't have that. Complete blank slate, wasn't it? So what was their context? Well, this is partly why Moses wrote the book of Genesis. He wrote the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, the book of Moses. He wrote these, think about this, he wrote this to a nation, Israel, that when he wrote it to them, they had grown up in the Egyptian country, in the Egyptian land, okay? That culture they grew up in made God in the image of man and beast. All their gods are made in their own image and the animals around them. Think about it. So in that culture, that this nation that Moses is writing to, they've grown up in this culture of God made in the image of man and beast. He's saying, nah, it's the other way around. So even right in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, Moses writes, let's go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Just a few verses we're going to look at today. Here is Adam and Eve's context. Here is where their story starts in the middle of. starts in the middle of God. And Moses is saying to the people of Israel, you might have grown up amongst some people who say that God looks like that and looks like that and acts like that. Actually, it's the other way around. God does not reflect you. You reflect God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. This is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Triune God. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful. And multiply it and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Lord Jesus, as we unpack these few verses, may you express to us a new revelation, a new sense of awareness, a new understanding of what it means to be made in your image. It can be quite an abstract notion and we can't quite get our heads around what it means and therefore does it bear any relevance to my everyday life? And you say it does. So Lord, as we look into this this morning, may we all go away from here with a fresh understanding of what it means to us during our everyday lives. In your name we pray. Amen. What does it mean to be made in his likeness? Well, the thing is, what does this word likeness mean? The word image, the word likeness, doesn't mean identical. It's not a Xerox, Xerox copy. To be made in his image and his likeness is the same as in Genesis 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 3. Adam has his son Seth. Seth was made in his image and his likeness. Both those words are used in that verse. And they mean the same. It's like Amy isn't a Xerox copy of me. Thank goodness. She'd have a big bushy beard and a bald head. <laughs> but people can see she's my daughter. There are elements. There is an essence of me. There is an essence of Jenny in her. We, there is likenesses in our children. And the times Jenny tells me I'm, I'm becoming more and more like my dad. 
Yeah, we, we all say that, don't we? It's true. That's what it means to have an image, a likeness. There is, there is an essence, but it's not a pure photocopy. Does it help? So, I've got some pictures for you. Who are these people trying to be? <laughs> Do I need to pull those curtains again? Who's that? David Beckham. Well, it's not. None of them are the real one. They're all impersonated. Some with varying degrees of success. Not bad, though. Some of them aren't bad, are they? Yeah. But none of those are the real David Beckham. But you can see there is an essence there. None of them are an exact Xerox copy. But straight away, you could see who it was. Let's look at the next image. I've got three of these. What's the next one? Oh! You can see it's Michael Jackson, but none of those are Michael Jackson. In fact, I'm not quite sure about the one in the middle at the bottom. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> I think that might actually be a girl. I'm not quite sure. I hope it is with that amount of makeup. But one more. It's obvious who it is, but it's obvious they aren't the Queen. Do you see? Image, likeness, there is an essence of. You can see a reflection of, a pointer to, but it's not that person. Does that help? So, thank you, Paul. So, what I've done. I've been trying to think about what it means to be his image. I've been reading up what it means to be made in his image. I've been reading up on this. And the key thing to remember is that whenever we've tried to describe what it means to be made in his image, it's not one thing. A lot of times people try and explain, oh, it's because we can reason, which animals can't. Or it's because we communicate in a different way. Or, or because, um, because we're, we, we have a, a yearning, a search for higher things that animals don't. It's not one thing. It's a number of things. There is a broad essence, a broad spectrum of how we reflect God as being made in his image. And therefore, there is a purpose to understanding this and implications to us. So what I've done, we're going to have to be quite quick. But I've come up with seven ways in which we are made in his image, with an eighth for when you become a believer. So there's eight in total. See if you can guess what they are. They don't all begin with the same letter. I'm not a proper Baptist, but they all end in A-L. So there you go. I'll come up. They all end in A-L. See if you can guess what they're going to be. Let's come up with the first one. Is it up there? On the final slide. It's thinking. What's the first one? David Beckham. <laughs> we are made in... No, we look. There he is. The first one is relational. Here we go. First of seven, and then there's the eighth. Relational. There are some aspects of this that you can see in the animal kingdom. Animals are relational, aren't they? Wolves, they are purely like nuclear. They're probably the closest in the animal kingdom you get to us. They have nuclear families for life. But um, others, gibbons, uh, mate for life. Swans, mate for life. Animals are relational to a degree. But humanity takes it to a whole other level. Is that not right? Can we not see that? I think it's quite obvious, isn't it? This is the thing. We are made in the image of God... We, remember this, we are made in the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And therefore, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Straight away, you can see there, even before time began, before anything was made, we have an eternal, never created, triune God. The Godhead of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect family, perfect community, perfect loving community, which is where creation comes from. It's an overflow of that. We want to share this. That's where we come from. We are made in the image of a communal God. We were talking about communion earlier. It's about relationship. Relationship with him and with each other. 
And this is why when you see metaphors and explanations of the church, you see we are described as the bride of Christ. Relationship. We're not just described as adoptive children. We are adopted children. Relationship. He draws us into his family. He's building himself a family forever. We are relational in a whole different way that animals cannot be. We are set apart just by looking. We can see it, can't we? So that's the first one. That's relational. What's the next one? This one you can see a little bit in the animal kingdom as well. The next one is creational. We are made in the image of a creator God. Therefore, we reflect that by being creative. You do see a little bit of that in the animal kingdom. There are, I mean, you get apes and birds and how they build their nests. And sometimes it's quite clever where they build them as well. I don't know how they do it on the edges of cliffs where there's nothing to pin it to. I don't know how they do it. But there's creativity in the animal kingdom. But nothing quite like (laughs) what we see around us amongst people. There are no da Vinci's or Beethoven's amongst the albatrosses and the orangutans of the world. It would be quite impressive if there were. But there's a reason why. We, we, humanity, is made in the image of God who is creative. And man's creativity is quite exceptional, both for promoting society and because we're in a fallen world for corrupting and decaying and destroying society, demolishing. Just one thing I will say here. Creativity is exceptional in the world. And I, I think it's a shame that we don't see enough of it in the church. We're very good at taking the easy road and not thinking out of the box too much, I think. The Steve Jobs, the Lady Gargas, the Bankses of the world are exceptional in creativity. Whether you approve of how they apply that is something else, of course. But I like to see a few more redeemed Steve Jobs and Bankses in the church. Why can we not express God in a whole new way? It can still be biblical. But I think we've been, unfortunately, in many ways, and there are people within the church who are being exceptionally creative, but I don't think there's enough. We've become very good at being world mimickers, not world leaders in this. Is it just me? or I don't want to get on my hobby horse, but I think there is an aspect there. Even in worship, in the music, there's, I mean, it's unfortunate we have to have a worship industry, really, but even in there, a lot of the music is copying music from two or three years ago. Why are we not the ones who are showing the world how to do it? musically and there are again there are people out in the world there are the Ryan Tedders from One Republic his their their song uh, Counting Stars hit number one it's a brilliant song he's a Christian they're not a Christian band and preaching through their songs he's just going out there making a difference and their songs are based on biblical values and making a difference from the inside out and those songs are very creative they're different there's something else there which is why they're getting more popular Lecrae the Christian rapper phenomenal rapper in America he's getting bigger and bigger and now he's mixing with the oi polloi of of the rapper world and he's been accepted as one of them but he's quite happy to talk about Christ it's different there is a fresh creativity but I'd like to see more of that I really would and I think unfortunately sometimes the church gets on, 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 on into the mode where if we are Christians and we're making music or art whatever it would be for Jesus it needs to all be about Jesus the trouble is if you make a film or a song that all it does is talk about Jesus the only people that will listen to it will be Christians we have to be creative in how we present Jesus. That doesn't, doesn't mean we betray our values or who we stand for and we should always be prepared to preach Christ. We just need to be creative in how we present that to the world in order to have open ears in the first place to listen to what we have to say. Martin Luther once said, the Christian shoemaker shouldn't be making shoes with little crosses on. He should just be making really, really good shoes. Does it make sense? 
We are creative beings. Let's run with it. It's good. We should be showing the world how to be creative, shouldn't we? Next one. Can you think of any more words ending in A-L? Personal. Well, we've done the relational. I think that'll come under that. Good one. I've got another one. This next one is intellectual. Intellectual. Dolphins are very intelligent. I've not had a conversation with one, but I'm told they are. But I bet a dolphin can't discuss metaphysics or philosophy. There is a whole other level to humanity's intelligence and ability to be intellectual. Notice this. What is the first thing that God does after making Adam and Eve? Verse 28, he talks to them. Straight away, he doesn't talk to the animals. It's Dr. Doolittle, isn't it? Talks to the animals. The first thing God does after making man a separate being to, to the animals, he talks to them. There is an intellectual level that we are able to respond to because we're made in his image. He is the ultimate intelligent being. He knows and understands everything and we reflect that in a different way that animal kingdom cannot. In, our, in how we communicate, in innovation, when you look at technology and advances, these, I mean, it's just accelerating these days, isn't it? When it was years ago that a phone in your hand had more computing power than what got men to the moon, and now our phones are something else yet again already, aren't they? What you can do, and you can watch TV on your phone, I mean, it's just Star Trek, isn't it? It's just normal life now. Technological advance is remarkable. Innovation is remarkable. And that, again, that kind of comes slightly alongside creation, being creational as well. But there is an intellectual capacity to go further than just being clever with technology, but it's such that we can philosophise and start asking questions about why we're here, non-believers and believers. We ask questions, why am I here? What, what am I here for? No animal questions their existence. They just take it for granted. That's why the dog's life is so easy. But we want to know why we're here. Our intellectual capacity creates in us a hunger for something else, which goes hand in hand with something else. Next one, spiritual. We are spiritual because we're made in his image, in the image of the spirit God, the ultimate spirit. See, our intellectual capacity gets us searching for something higher. But that goes hand in hand with the fact that we are spiritual beings. Animals don't pray. Thank God for that really tasty chicken and rice bolio. Yes, they don't, do they? Of course they don't. And they don't outright rebel against him. I'm going to have nothing to do with God, I know better. They just get on with doing what they do as animals. There is a difference to humanity. We are made with a spirit that hungers for more. We are made with a spirit that hungers for more. Whether you're a Christian or not, whether you have a faith or not, we all yearn for something higher, a higher level of existence to just what we see with our physical eyes. Is that not right? Everybody does. Whether you don't want to believe in a God, atheists still yearn for a higher level of existence. That might just be in how they connect with community, with humanity, or getting a buzz by dancing to music when it's full on and loud gives you a whole transcendent moment I've been like that you just you just get caught up in the moment or you just get a, some people just get an absolute buzz from having a high highly intellectual conversation with three or four people about again philosophy some people get a real buzz from that depending on what your Myers-Briggs is you'll get a buzz out of different things 
But we all yearn for those transcendent moments. There is something we want more than just this. And that's because we are spiritual creatures. We are made in the image of the spiritual God. And we yearn for more because of that. And so in Ecclesiastes 3.11, when it says that God put eternity in the heart of man, that's not just a chronological time thing. That is the things of eternity. Eternal matters. All of us have that in us. And that will never rest until you find the truth, Jesus. There is that hunger there because we were made to be spiritual creatures in his image, a longing to search out the ultimate spirit. Three more. Can't be more, can there? What's the next one? Magisterial. Oh, I had to come up with that word to get the AL on the end. <laughs> but it means, it means to steward, to care for, to, to be a magistrate, to rule on his behalf because he says... In verse 28 again. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. Have dominion. So when he says, was it? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Subdue not as in the negative sense of the word, but the positive sense of the word. To have dominion over the earth, to be magisterial, means to make the earth's resources beneficial. To steward on his behalf. He's the king. When a king leaves the nation to go away to war, to do whatever they do, they leave a steward in place to care for the kingdom. That's what God's given us. We have a delegated authority. He is the king. We are his stewards. Do we do that well? Not really. (laughs) Trying, trying. Well, we as the church can learn to do better then, can't we? How we recycle, how we how we care for our animals, how we care for other people, how we choose what car we have, not a big gas guzzler that's four litres and looks great in the magazine but actually is terrible for the atmosphere. I don't know. I'm not saying you should do that, but we should be aware that we have a responsibility to care for this planet and we're not always very good at that because we're selfish. We have a delegated authority that reflects him. Two more plus the extra. What's the next one? Moral. We are moral creatures. All of us have an innate sense of dividing actions and heart between right and wrong. Do we not? We get aghast when someone does something that we think is awful. But the trouble is, that dividing line wavers from person to person. Doesn't it? Some people accept more than I'll accept as right. Some people think as long as you're not hurting anybody else, it's okay. But we, we all have a conscience. We're all either very good at hearing our conscience or either very good at hearing it and ignoring it. But we all have a conscience. Some of us hear it better than others. Some of us respond to it better than others. But that is put in there by God because we are made in his image. We are made in the image of the moral God. He is the ultimate moral authority, which is where that dividing line of what you decide is right or wrong We need to always ensure if we're believers and we believe he's the ultimate authority, we should make our morals come in line with his. That's often a learning curve as well. And it's not always easy in grey matters. Not everything's black and white. But we should understand, particularly where society is going these days, culture is going these days, politics is going these days, we should never assume that because it's always about tolerance or equality that it's okay. What does the Bible say? What does God say? And we, quite often the church can disagree about what the Bible says, but at least have that conversation and then know where you stand as a believer. 
I can't, I don't, I don't let my morals rest on what makes me feel comfortable or what makes me feel right about my friend's situation. I need, I need to know what God knows and what God believes. And I, I, I don't waver outside of that. And that's not always easy, that's not always comfortable, makes for difficult conversations sometimes. But we are made moral creatures in his image, and so I'd rather reflect him more and more, wouldn't you? In Amos 7 verse 8, the prophet Amos tells us, tells, uh, speaks God's word to God's people about He says, I put a plumb line amongst you. You know plumb line, when you're doing, doing the wallpaper, you do the plumb line against the wall, it tells you what is straight and what is true. God needs to be our plumb line. Without that, we as the church are woefully cast adrift and we just get sucked up with where the rest of the world are going. And that's not always a good thing. We are moral creatures. Right. What's left? Devotional. Devotional. I, I, I put that into, in terms of spiritual and relational. I haven't got that on the list that's certainly relevant. I wouldn't even say this list is completely comprehensive, to be honest. Devotional is a good one. One more. Immortal. Are we? Are we? Eternal. Immortal. This is it. There we go. I could have used eternal instead of immortal. We are immortal creatures. You see, Adam and Eve were made immortal. They were. They were just going to live forever in God's presence, be fruitful and multiply. That was the original plan. God knew they were going to upset the apple cart. (laughs) Apple cart. See what I did there? I didn't even plan that. That's amazing. I'm going to remember that one for next time. The fall brought death on mankind, physical death on mankind, and, and spiritual separation. Death just means separation. So when we lose a loved one, we are separated from them. We can't see them again. But there's also spiritual death, that without Christ, you're spiritually dead to him. There is a separation. And Adam and Eve were made physically and spiritually immortal. But even in those of us that are either either were without Christ and therefore dead spiritually, even if you still exist on this planet, there is actually for everyone, there is an essence that we're all immortal in terms of eternal existence. All of us will exist forever. The question is whether it's with or without him. Scary, I know. But there is not complete annihilation or oblivion when you leave this planet and there's nothing on the other side. The Bible makes it quite clear there is life after death or death after death. There's still existence, but either dead, separated from God, or alive with him forever. You still exist. It's a scary notion, but it's true. But through Jesus, we can regain that spiritual life as much as we will exist forever, but I know where I'd rather exist. With him forever. Free from sin, free from shame, free from sickness, free from death. Life after death. There's just seven, like, again, like John says with devotional, I didn't want the list to be going on forever. There's seven aspects of how we reflect God. There's one more, I would say you get, when you become a Christian, one more gets added onto the list. Missional. The world is broken. And the world has been broken by us, image bearers. Man and woman, bearing the image of God, broke the world he gave to them, broke their future. It's 
quite heavy, isn't it? We all have a purpose still remaining. Even when we live without him, we still have a purpose to reflect him. That's what we do by default as image bearers. We reflect him. And we all have a purpose to seek him. That's why there's always that hunger for something else. Even if we don't know what, it's, what it is we're looking for, there is that spiritual hunger for a higher level of existence. And until you find him, you'll never be satisfied. But as believers, when we have found him, we have a new purpose. And that is to point to him. We have a job to do. We can't just rest on our laurels and think we're safe. Thinking that we're safe. It's okay now. I could put my feet up. We've still got a job to do. Because there are thousands, there are billions out there who don't know Jesus. And that can make me feel sick sometimes. What can I do? I'm just Steve. Well, he says, I'm with you. I'm building my church. Go and tell them. Make disciples. If it was impossible, I wouldn't have told you to do it. It's okay. You're not going to save everyone. But together as the church, you can do the job. And I'm with you every step of the way. I'm with you always, he says. See, we have a job we didn't have before. And it's our mission because it's his mission. Jesus planned the great rescue long before any of this was created. Jesus planned the great rescue with the Father, with the Spirit. The plan was already in place. Because as soon as the fall happened, they could step in and go, it's okay, this is going to happen. And the prophecy came about crushing his head. Which I think Julian, someone's going to look at, David is going to look at in a few weeks' time. The promise was already, to, already there, ready and waiting in the wings to go. Because they knew what was going to happen. And we as the church can live out that now. Not just live a life with him hiding in a corner, but live a life with him out in the world, showing, pointing, inviting in that people might meet Jesus. Just before I finish, I just want to share a little image that Phil Moore... This is a really good book. Maybe you could get a copy for the book table or something just to show people if you want to buy a copy. Phil Moore is one of our New Frontiers pastors. He does a lot of these straight to the heart of series and really good ones. We've read, was it Acts and Matthew? Really, really good, really helpful. Here's his one on Genesis. Get a copy, it's great. It's just good for daily, daily devotions as well. Absolutely brilliant. In here, on this particular passage, he relates it to the image of cat's eyes. You see the cat's eyes at night. What are they there to do? They're... Keep you safe, to guide. They reflect the headlights. They reflect the headlights and you can see them. Some of those are broken. Some of those are brilliant. Some of those are, you can see the broken ones as you drive along. And there's just a dim reflection of something. There's something going on there. All of mankind are cat's eyes. And all of us reflect him in different ways and to different degrees. Remember the David Beckhams and the Queens up there. Some of them were better than others, varying degrees of success. All the cat's eyes reflect something, but some of them are very dull, very dim. They're broken. We, the church, are made new and we shine in brighter and brighter. The more we get to know him, the more we see him with unveiled faces, as 2 Corinthians 3 says. We reflect him more and more. There are still a lot of broken cat's eyes out there. But know this, even if you don't know Jesus, regardless of your age, your colour, your gender, your status, your gifts, your abilities, you're not an accident. 
You're not just another animal. You have a purpose. You are made in the image of God. You bear the image of the relational, creational, intellectual, spiritual, magisterial, moral, immortal and, and missional when you know him, God. That is him to the nth degree. And we reflect that in a small way. Romans 2. This is something that's just struck me. Romans 2, as we finish. It's a verse I've known about and I've never quite got my head around. No, Romans 1. Romans 1, 19, there it is. They talk about the unrighteous, so there's even non-believers. I've read this before, and it says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. These are people who don't, who don't know God. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. And I've read that before, and I think, has he? Well, the Bible says so, so it must be true, but I can't quite get my head around that. So then I start to think, well, like okay, creation, pretty sunsets and rainbows and mountains and oceans and tsunamis. Maybe that, that's, is, that, is that what God means by this? You look out there and go, well, there must be a God. Because there's a lot of people who go out, no, evolution. <laughs> no, you know, there's no God out there, it's just a thing. It's just a result of scientific chemical processes and, and reactions. So what, what does God really mean by this? Do you know what? On learning more and more, this is to do with being image bearers. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. If all of us are cat size, believers or non-believers, and all of us reflect God in some way, even if we don't know it, all you need to do is look at the person next to you and see a pointer to God. Go look at the person next to you. You're looking at an image bearer. You're looking at a cat's eye that reflects God. Next time you're brushing your teeth, look in the mirror. Oh, that time of the morning. Do it tonight before we go to bed. Look in the mirror. You're seeing an image bearer. You're seeing someone who points to God. As much as non-believers may look at trees and flowers and animals and go, just processes, there is something about humanity that is different. And it cannot be denied. And there's a reason, because we point to God. If Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1, the word their image is used because it's talking about the creator, which goes on in the same verse. He created all things, sustains all things. This is the creator. He is the ultimate image because he is the God. We are made in his image. We are the pointers. He is the destination. So next time you look at a human being, Remember, that's someone who points to the great living God. Next time, you look at someone who doesn't know him. Maybe there's something in conversation that could be drawn in about humanity, how humanity is different and points to God. Through all those aspects. The world says you will be fulfilled when you realise that you are God. Follow your heart. Do what you think is best. As long as you're happy. Hear it all the time. And all that amounts to is saying that you are God because you are making the decisions and you know better. I don't want to follow my heart. That's the last thing I should be doing. (laughs) I'll be off over there somewhere. 
The world says you are fulfilled when you realise you are God. Fulfilment comes from knowing you are not God, you are of God. Big difference. Let's seek the one we point to, shall we? Would you like to just stand? Let's pray.